Hey, welcome back to the Flexible Diet Podcast, where we discuss all things to enable better body composition, strength, muscle, and performance without costing your health in a flexible approach. Today, I've got an amazing podcast with my good friend, Adam Glass. You may know Adam from his crazy Instagram account, where he's doing some Insane things that we get into in the podcast here, such as uh, pull-ups from pinch, a block of bars, pretty easy looking 45 pound plate furled, walking around with a Thomas inch dumbbell in each hand for farmer's walk. That was a little bit too easy. So now he's working on doing that thumbless. So all your thumb and fingers are on the same side, which is crazy hand and wrist strength. And we're talking all about training principles today and additionally a new grip product that I am working on with Adam where he's going to break down a whole bunch of the concepts for you. As I've said before, if you have very poor tires on your car, it is limiting your performance because your tires are the interaction where the quote rubber meets the road. Your grip strength is the same aspect with all forms of training. Anytime you're holding on to a barbell, a dumbbell, an opponent, maybe you're doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're holding on to an implement such as tennis, golf, etc. What we both have found is that grip strength can be a limiter in your overall strength and performance. So while if you want to do high-level grip competition, we talk about competing in Finland, both of us were over there. This is more or less geared towards other people who are not wanting to be a high level grip competitor, how these training tactics can help you increase your strength and just overall performance. The good part is you don't have to dedicate hours per week to it. We also discuss the number one error that we see people making all the time and how you can easily avoid that. So this podcast is brought to you by the new training product I'm doing with Adam Glass. If you're on my newsletter insider list, you will see all the information coming there. So make sure to check that out. If you are not, you can still get on it in time. Go to bettergripstrength.com. You will see a picture of Adam there hanging from one hand doing a plate curl with a 45 pound plate, which is absolutely insane. So go to those two locations. We'll have all the information in the notes below. We would love for you to be in on this product. It's going to be awesome. And sit back and enjoy this conversation with Adam Glass. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. And today I'm here with my good buddy, Adam Glass. How's it going, man? Man, it goes great. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, this will be fun. We're going to have a, I don't know, just a chat about some grip stuff and just general training wherever it goes. And I got to hang out at your place with you and Ashley again for almost like five days on our way through Texas. So that was super fun. We did some interesting heavy dumbbell carries and lots of prowler work. And that was fun in a twisted way. <laughs> I, it's funny. It's amazing how it worked out that the hobby you've decided upon involves passing right by my house twice a year. So that has just worked out fantastically over the eight years, man. Yeah, it's been great because as of this recording, I'm down here in South Padre, Texas and doing some kiteboarding, which has been good. Been able to get out 
like five times so far, usually on different size kites to the 12, 13 and a half meter, 10 meter the other night. Yeah. And it's been nice. So when we drive down, we go within an hour, your place, it's nice to stop by, see you guys for a while, get in some lifting. And it's also a good breakup of the entire trip. There's people who they're crazy, but they'll drive it like straight through or over two days, like straight through it's 24 hours, which Oh, maybe I'm getting old, but I don't have any desire to drive for 24 hours in a row. That just sounds Bro, absolutely I miserable. I understand the ones that do it because I used to drive that way, but I just, I don't do it anymore. It feels like I'm in a big rush to get there. And then for two days afterwards, one of my hips, it feels just completely yeah. stuck from being in that <laughs> car. Definitely think it is a better deal that if you have the time to do to get there a little bit slower so that you feel great when you arrive. Yeah, that's the other part I noticed too. It's like we used to drive, or especially when I was in school, I'd drive back and do some long drives and it's, oh, okay. So yeah, maybe I got there in less time, but man, I felt destroyed for two days. So it's like, is it really that much farther ahead in the end? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, know. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think that's probably one of the more noticeable, one of those little things that you have where you talk about and you contrast when you're in your 20s to 40s. When I used to come out to Minnesota to see you guys, it would be really common that I would have worked 12 hour day in the field the day before, barely slept that night, got up at 4 a.m., started driving to get out to Minneapolis from Minot, which is about a 425 mile drive. Yeah. Uh, take me seven to eight hours most of the time. And then pull up in a parking lot and 20 minutes later, we'd start a lifting contest or something. There's no freaking way you could get that kind of performance out of me right now, man. The mind is willing, but there's no way my body would tolerate that. Yeah, that is the one thing I have noticed, I would say in general, about being a little bit older. I'm 48 right now, which I don't think is old. It's like performance-wise, like my lifts that I'm working on are better now than they've ever been. Warm-up-wise, I'm definitely a lot better than I was at a certain point in my life, which was a trash bin fire at that point. But the ability that I have now to tolerate not moving for long periods of time and then go right into high levels of movement is definitely a lot lower. I just feel just going to take a few more warm-up sets. It just takes a little longer to get going. And maybe part of that is just a higher level of awareness of the risk I'm running. And I just don't want to get injured in the gym. Like that's so low on my list and shit's going to happen and things are going to happen at that time. But I feel like if I just take a few more warm up sets that everything just feels better overall. I totally agree. I think that really is the keen insight that that knowledge in the back of your head that man, look, this is all for fun. I'm not, I'm really not trying to get hurt today just just screwing around so maybe it will add a little 20 minutes here to what we're, whatever we're going to do i think that's i think that's one of the more interesting elements that comes about when you look at all your feedback markers things like hrv and such a good day does not necessarily mean the session is going to start off amazing at times correct and i think it, it really it re there really is something to people figuring out whatever that right combination of their warm-up ritual is. And at the end of the day, there's, you see so many trainers bashing all the kinds of warm-up things. And I get it because they're looking at it from the sense of how much impact this particular thing would make versus another. But there really is something to 
a given person figuring out what is that pattern of spinning the dial to unlock mm -hmm. Meaning, like my, the three things I do the most in my warmups, I would bet most people would look at that and think that was a pretty stupid waste of time, but I can show you on a piece of paper. Okay. All the sessions where I start this way goes in this direction. And the ones that I don't do those things, it just does not go as well. For me, the funniest one is for a couple months now, I've been starting all of my, if I'm going to be doing resistance training that day with a fat bar overhand reverse curl. And hmm. that doesn't really seem like that great of a warm up choice. It's not like you're moving around all that much. But the big thing that happens is within the first seven or eight reps of the first set, I will get four or five very relaxing feeling releases throughout my left arm. There'll be several popping sensations, and then you'll see an instant change in how much my shoulders move, how much my elbow, how easily it's flexing, extending all these different things. So it's funny because man, for most people, I would not say that with this precious amount of time you have to train, we need to do 10 minutes of something so specifically small, but holy shit, for me, it makes a massive difference. Yeah. And I bet most people watching you would be like, oh, he's doing some super advanced pre-fatiguing of the muscle. And no, I'm just trying to move better. <laughs> man, I am just trying to get this elbow feeling great. What are the other two things you do? The other two. So if I'm going to be doing pull-ups, what has been surprisingly useful to me is I will take several of those, those elastic tubular cables. You can, you could probably buy them at any sporting goods store in America. The ones that have a little clip at the end, yep. they're colored. I'll throw a couple over the pull-up bar, four or five of them. I will bind them just all up in my hand. And all I'm doing is bringing my elbow right down into my hip socket and depressing my scapula. So you'll get this really strong contraction through the upper back. And I'll just hold that position for 15, 20 seconds. And I'll go back and forth a couple of times. And the same thing to me, when I look at what I'm doing, it's this looks dumb. But, <laughs> but what has happened resumed a little personal quest. I had this thing in my mind that I wanted to hit 20 pinch pull-ups by new year on my blocks. So Mike, previously, if we go back to years past, if we go back to like when I had the gym in Minnesota, I would do sets of three to five reps on the pinch pull-up. And sometimes I would add weight, but it was staying right in that very, very small rep range. And when I started doing a lot of calisthenics about eight years ago, I had that stretch of time that the, all I did was body weight. The best I ever did was 14 consecutive reps weighing about 191 pounds. Right now I weigh 227. And I'm getting sets of 15 to 18 reps. So that that's like a pretty ridiculous change, especially because the limiting factor on that whole motion is in my fingertips. And it's been little and little things that you'd think would not make any kind of difference for me specifically. That's been a very useful thing. It's not that I think that would necessarily be all that useful to anybody else. But what I would want them to do is hear that story and ask themselves, what do I need to be doing to feel better as I'm starting this session, because generally speaking, you're just not going to have great days. If you can't get to that feeling better point, there's a huge power to be able to look down at the calendar and say, 
okay, hey, I trained 12 times this month, but out of the 12, 11 of those were really good sessions. I felt really good starting. I felt really good finishing. I think that adds up to a much better year than I've had previous years where my training average would be four and five days a week. And there, it becomes a part of a grind with the big thing being, and those of you that are doing a training like this, you already know what I'm going to say. If you're going to train five days a week, what you're really doing probably is you're having two pretty decent training sessions a week. And you're probably having two or three sessions that they're probably not that great. It, it might be more for your psychological benefit than anything else. It's just, it's really a challenge to actually do the right kind of work in more than a couple of things, but then come back and do that day after day. Oh man, for me in previous years, I was a big advocate of people training more or less as often as they could stand to with the thing that I was focused on there was their psychological benefit. I just think that it's going to de-stress them. It's going to give them a way to output the just, man, all the things that come with being in this modern world. And for me now, a lot of it has shifted to where, man, I'm really just trying to knock out some big PRs on the days that I do train. So if I can only get in two awesome sessions twice a week, that is perfectly fine. I've outgrown that need to try to lift the things every single day. Yeah. And I think that speaks to uh, two things the psychological versus the physiological thing. Like I've had some clients more so in the past where the conversation has been, okay, that's cool. If for your psychological health, if you feel like you need to go to the gym and do something that's absolutely brutal so you can make it through your day. Cool. I get it. Just be aware that's what you're doing maybe we'll transition you to something that just doesn't beat you up so bad. Like I can think of all sorts of heinous things you can do that. And you could probably come back in and do them again a couple of days later that are hard, but don't have a lot of eccentric stress. And they're not going to mechanically damage you as much. And then, you know, quality over quantity. And I think that's people training in most commercial gyms and even the people who show up there a lot, like back when I used to do that more often, I wouldn't say that a lot of their sessions were that, high quality. They were going through the motions, poking around on their phone between sets. Like just, it didn't seem like their performance ever got better. And again, maybe they're training for psychological reasons, who knows, but yeah, I think having the quality be high first. And then if you want to add more quantity is much better than an arbitrary number of, Oh, I train five days a week. So I must be better. No, not necessarily. <laughs> oh, and it could be a disappointing tally at the end of a stretch of time when you take that mentality that obviously I'm going to do better this round because I'm training more often. Maybe that could be, but it probably is not going to, it's just probably not going to go that way. So I, like for me, when I was doing a lot of gymnastics, daily training was really simple. It, it made a lot of sense doing that. When I came back out of that in 2018 to resume competition, I think that's when it started to really get my attention, how unproductive it is to have these sessions where I did go knock out seven or eight lifts and even saw some really good improvements that day. But at the time I'm looking at this calendar saying, I got to be ready on this day and you go back and evaluate, it's okay, out of the last 90 days, I've PR'd in all these lifts, I've moved up in all these different ways, but my competition lifts, what do those actually look like? And they weren't moving at the rate that I wanted to. They were good enough to be dominant, 
but I just had it in my mind that I could go further. And that was what I kept coming back to. And I think that's what, like, if I compare this last couple of years of competition to the previous block years back, so much remarkably better performances in the last few years with it being getting very specific on what I want. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when we say things like, oh, hey, I want to get stronger and I want to look better and I want to feel better. Yeah, those are all awesome. And we all want those things, but you have to take that so much more specific. I think about if, if Ashley and I and Jody and you are in the car and we're heading towards Fort Worth and we all agree we're hungry and we all agree good food is what we want. We're only one step closer to a many step decision, right? Okay. We're all hungry. That's great. And we all want some good food, but what do you want? And, and I think that a lot of people are going to have much, much better results the more that they can through all of that and really get to whatever it is that is meaningful for them. Because it's interesting when you look at how much a person can achieve in a year with even the most basic program, two people run that program. They have similar results. One of them can be over the moon ecstatic and the other one can be incredibly disappointed and you look at why is that it comes down to what did they want and i feel like that's been my most productive shift over this year with some of the new things i've done is just really getting it dialed in and what am i actually trying to accomplish here like hyper specifically can i articulate it in a sentence so that i actually can chase it in a way where we'll really catch it this year yeah. And I think that comes down to, like you said, specificity and with clients, I'm always like, okay, what are your top three goals? What is your number one obstacle? And if those goals change, that's cool. But if you don't know that it's like, if you just want to get in your car and drive and you don't care what, where you end up, then it doesn't matter. But if you're, if I'm trying to get in our car and we're trying to drive to Texas, then well, shit, I should probably go start going South or otherwise it's going to be a disaster. And even for me being down here, it's like, I know that overall, my number one goal is more related to kiteboarding than it is actually lifting, which doesn't mean I don't lift or not working on any other goals after that. But when I'm down here, it makes it a very easy decision. So, like, oh, okay, I've got two hours today. Is there wind? Oh, there is. Okay. So I'm going to go kiteboard, even if that means not going to the gym. So I didn't yesterday, two days ago is the first day I went to the gym since I've been here, but I've been able to ride like five days. So if my goal was a certain lift at all costs, then yeah, I would probably do the inverse of that decision. And neither one is right or wrong. It's just what does that person want to do? Because you see people set up goals that are then completely incongruent with their lifestyle. And so I want to be an Olympic weightlifting champion. Okay. But I can only train twice a week. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with that. That might be pretty difficult to pull off. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you what I have discovered that. So a couple of years ago, I had some of the arm wrestlers in the area reach out. They were really excited for me to just try out their sport. I think a lot of them were just trying to figure out like, okay, if that guy's hands are like this, what is he like on the arm wrestling table? And man, I, I really enjoy the community. I've met so many just really fantastic people, but I will tell you what I'm discovering with it. In order to make arm wrestling work, I have to be prepared to travel, not super duper far. And there's people who probably travel much farther than this every time they go to practice. But the thing that I'm realizing is I don't like the travel part. So there are days where, man, if I would be willing at, say, 7 p.m. to drive all the way across the Metroplex 
out from west of Fort Worth into the center of Dallas, I can be in a room with some of the very best people in the state to train. I'm just finding that, man, maybe it's not really the thing that I'm chasing because you would assume that if I really wanted to do this, the driving would just be part of the deal and I would be into it. I find that I'm not into that part so much. <laughs> so I, I don't predict any great outcomes from my arm wrestling adventures, primarily because it is it has been of all the strength sports I've ever played, it has been the very hardest one I have ever seen to learn to balance the recovery elements of it. And it's because there's no comparable. Okay, you might remember this, dude. In 2011, I set off on the whole 20 rep squat program kind of deal. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I, remember that. I, I was like, I keep seeing all these people are always saying that if you really want to see a lot of gains, you got to do this kind of thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I had months and months of doing 20 plus rep sets of squats. Obviously my squat went up a ton. I did gain weight. I think my heaviest I got up to then was like 235. It definitely made me bigger. And I remember that after that first month or two, it made a lot of sense to me on a given day. Okay. I'm going to go do this kind of set today that, and this is what it's going to cost with arm wrestling. It is it becomes so unpredictable because you're responding to a human being, number one. But the other thing is you're just loading your body with so much tension in positions that you never would do. There's no other sport I see where you have this kind of forces applied to such small bones and structures. There are guys that the amount of pressure they can put into your hand or into your wrist or on right on top of your bicep tendon, you couldn't even do that to yourself in a gym. You'd never figure it out. And in fact, that's one of the biggest challenges that a lot of people have is how do I actually train up for the sport? And you see a lot of different results and you see a huge spread that is, is not so easily deciphered. And for me, it has been, man, super fun, but a nightmare in figuring out like, dude, how do I keep any kind of balance in my body with this and not just end up another one of the guys who mo most arm wrestlers have pretty ferocious tendonitis most of the year. Oh yeah. And that's going to tell you that's part of paying the game. And Hey dude, if you're a marathon runner, you're going to have some beat up feet. Everybody knows that. But the thing about it for me is, man, I don't, I do not want to do 365 days a year with elbow pain just so that maybe five times a year I can show up and dude, pulling a tournament bracket, most of your matches are over in six seconds. Oof. So you get to the tournament, you weigh in, you hang out, you watch the matches. When your bracket comes up, your bracket will come and go in minutes. And you might pull four or five rounds that does not even add up to 30 seconds of work for the day. And then that was the whole deal. So when you, when you evaluate it by... How am I going to feel all the time in order to feel a certain way in this very specific tiny amount of time? I'm finding my heart's not in it as much as I would have thought it would have been if you would have asked me years ago. But very enjoyable activity, especially when you're just figuring it out, because it is far more complex than someone would assume. Yeah, and I think that's a very advanced decision, right? Because you're looking at here's the pros, here's the cons. And then I'm actually going to evaluate what I'm actually doing related to those things, right? And I think that's where 
people go wrong. They're like, I want to do X and I'm going to dedicate Y to it. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Given the opportunities were there. So if it's arm wrestling, there's a place you can compete or practice, et cetera. How many times did you show up to potentially do the thing? And they're like, I just didn't make it out. I understand life happens, things happen. But if it's something you were really committed to and it was your top priority, you probably would have followed through with that. I think a lot of times people fall into the trap of, eh, this was a goal I think everyone else wanted for me to do, but I didn't really want to do it. But I don't really want to admit that, but I haven't really done the thing. And then they feel bad. They're not making progress. But I'm like, you, you, how do you expect to make progress when you didn't practice the thing? And we used to see that quite a bit. We would have sport days at the gym. So we would open it up. You got all these people. They signed on because they're looking to have some aesthetic changes. The great majority of those people said, I know I need to change how I'm eating and I would like to look a different way. Cool. Let's do it. And we would throw them into those things. And it would be some people really enjoy that sports side. And some people absolutely despise it. And we had some people that would make themselves do it. It's one of those life experience things, be able to command yourself on the spot. Yeah. But I think it, it becomes pretty obvious. The people that just, oh, I don't think this activity is going to be for you. Maybe it <laughs> is, but... You don't seem to be enjoying yourself so much. So maybe we need to find something else for you. On that note, guys, for those of you that listen to this podcast often with Dr. Mike, so you might not know this, but Michael has done more types of lifting contests than almost anyone I know. There would be months that Mike would come out to the gym and we'd do a grip contest on this Saturday. He'd come back next Saturday. We would have had a tactical strength challenge. Come back the next weekend, we had an all-around weightlifting meet. Mike, I would have to imagine that if we looked at some of the records and scoreboards, you've probably competed in, I don't know, 20 different grip contests over the last 10 years, which is about 20 more than most people who do the same thing you do. <laughs> yeah, and it's been fun. And you do something long enough, you can even get a chance to compete in it in Finland by just hanging out at the Arnold and being in the right spot. And I remember, so Arto was there, huge, massive top lifter from Finland. Adam was there. You guys were competing at the Arnold. I think I probably told this story before. And Arto's telling Adam, he's, hey, Adam, don't do worlds in Russia. You come lift with us in Finland. And Adam's like, oh, that, that sounds cool. And I was telling Arto, Jody was there too. I said, hey, we'll, we'll come over and watch. That would be fun. We love going to Finland. Archo's like, you, you should compete. And then Adam was saying, you were saying, I've done grip competitions and stuff before. And I was telling Arto, I'm like, but Arto, you need a special invite to come to these things. It's not just a grip is a huge thing in Finland. And Arto's so funny. He's like, special invite. I give you special invite. You come compete. I'll and then it we was, did. <laughs> and the, the biggest cultural difference that, that I saw related to that so guys, the venue that we lifted at when we were there was at a resort, beautiful hotel up on a mountain, up on a hill yeah. that looks down into this valley where you have this beautiful lake. Just when you guys hear it, it's Northern Europe, it looks the way you're imagining big, huge green trees, right? And this contest was happening all through the day. It got going in the morning. There were tons of competitors. I think they had almost 60 or 70 lifters. So it takes a certain process of time. And the thing that I saw there that I've never seen anywhere else, the families that were at the resort 
would just stroll into the room that the lifting was happening, would sit down and grab a table, order a beer, and would watch the lifters. And they didn't know any of the people. No, that it, was it amazing. Wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the family of various lifters that was there. They were other families on vacation. It's just in their culture, they really love lifting sports. And they have no problem coming up off the beach from the lake to go sit down in a room and watch a bunch of guys yell and scream and try to lift 50 pounds on his tiny little thing. <laughs> yeah, that was super fun. And I think it's always it goes back to if you get presented sometimes with opportunities, you just have to figure out a way to make it happen. At the time I competed in your class against you and all the other lifters, but I'm like, eh, whatever. And who else can say that you competed at a international event in Finland and everyone was, was super fun. Most of them were incredibly autistic, which was even more hilarious and fun. <laughs> whole room, the whole room. <laughs> Explain that to people who are listening. Cause they might think that's insulting, but it's not an insult at all, actually. Okay. I'll tell you this. And for those of you that have never been around a really high level tier of a strength sport, this might not make sense, but it's absolutely true. If you look at strongman, powerlifting, things like grip sport, some of the weirder things that come out of that, things from the kettlebell community, I will tell you almost every top lifter I've ever met would be somewhere on the diagnosable um, spectrum of autism. And looks to me like the reason that you see this big jump in performance at the top 2% from the bottom 98 it deals with what the person thinks is fun. So for me, it is perfectly fun to go out into my garage on a cold, rainy day and try to pick up these stupid weights that most people don't even want to mess with. <laughs> and when you go to the highest level competitions, you realize that, wow, okay, so that's the secret sauce for this whole sport. And it's that ability to just have this unyielding focus towards things that generally speaking are not super fast progress for a lot of people out there. If you have not been deadlifting and somebody gets you going deadlifting the right way, and you're following any of the many proven formulas for how to do it week by week, it wouldn't be unrealistic to expect that at the end of a year, you may have put on 150 pounds from the first day you lifted on the bar. Yeah, like yeah, maybe, totally. Maybe day one, you started and you could pull 250 and that was tough and 275, you're a little scared. It very easy could be at the end of year one, you're pulling 400 pounds very easily. When you look at the change, when you go to my sport, if we test it out something like, and we'll use a big lift, like your overhand fat bar, which for most people, that'll be the most weight they lift in this kind of sport. Man, a year of hard, dedicated work, you might only put on 15 pounds. Yeah. And the thing about it is the limit, your hips will be way stronger. Your back will be stronger. You will be more muscular at the end of that year. But the limitation that is stopping you from putting on weight is three small joints in your hand because the thumb is such a limitation there. A five-year program that's super productive might only actually put on 50 pounds on a given guy's lift. And Mike, that's pretty common. If we oh, look yeah. at guys that get started in arm lifting, if we look at a guy who started in 2018, for example, and we look at his overhand axle numbers today, I would be probably shocked if their number from 2018 to 2022 was more than 40 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. About 10 uh, pounds a year, I think is pretty damn good. 
that's, and I can point out three guys that I can specifically tell you that. So I know that in 2018, we had a meet in Fort Worth. Tanner Merkel came out that day and got 405. I lifted, I think, 422. And that year in California, Carl Myerscough was getting like 480, which is insane. Oh, you nuts. go to 2020, you go to 2022, Carl is now getting about 510 to 515. I'm getting between 450 and 460. Tanner's getting between 450, 460. So there's three lifters right there that they put on less than 50 or 60 pounds of four years. And that is chasing hard. I, I just don't, I just don't think the kind of person who is very much into novel and very much into show me something fun today. I think it'd be a very hard sport for them to progress. in. I think they'd have a lot of fun at meets, especially because there's people there, but the actual day in day out training for the sports side, you've probably got to be a little autistic to actually go somewhere with it. Cause there's going to be a lot of times that you are not progressing anywhere near the rate that you would be if you were just say, back squatting and doing deadlift of a mixed grip yeah and i've noticed too that it's the longer you do it the more non-linear it becomes and the more you may have to paradoxically move around to other lifts and so like for me like i'll trade off and this is directly from your advice too between axel and saxon bar as the higher priority and when my axle just kind of falls out, there's other variations I'll still work on, but I've learned that <clears throat> if I work on a Saxon bar, which is an overhand pinch grip, which we'll get into when that goes up, that'll almost always transfer back to my axle. So I go back and I do more axle work, boom, my axle goes up and I'll go back and do more Saxon work. I'm still working on both of them usually at around the same time, but going back to our priority, I'll take a period of time and one of them will be a higher priority, which just means I do it earlier in the session. I probably push frequency a little bit more, but even on a Saxon bar, you're talking about even a little bit less progress. So I pulled about 165 in March for a fugly looking single. And before I left to come down here, so middle of October, I got what 175 for a triple, I think. So it's, oh, 10 pounds, maybe a little bit over depending upon my max. And I was pretty happy with that. So it's very small integral changes over time. And as you do it more, there's more kind of variability within that. If you're just looking from day to day, one to the next. There's a couple of insights I will share with people too, that I think will help them out. So for most people, if we can get you to add more training of your wrist and hands, it's going to help out whatever else you're doing. Now, obviously, there's a point of diminishing returns there. If you're a baseball player, I don't want you to be spending 20% of your time training your hands. But if I could get you to maybe spend five, we can get something done. And the number one change that I think a lot of people who are not really chasing it in some of the different ways that maybe you or I have done would benefit from. So Mike, a lot of people, when they see grip training, they do understand, okay, I probably should do something for my hands because I'm not doing anything with it. But the problem is a lot of people are focusing on relatively too low intensity and they're doing holds. Yep. 
And the problem with that is most of the time holding something lightweight is just not, it's not going to translate the way that, that you'd want it to later. So I know people that are in the gym now and their trainers got them doing things like their farmers walking around three, 10 pound, dumb, three, 10 pound plates in their hand in a pinch. First of all, kudos, because you are now engaging that wrist and that thumb the way we want. But when we compare how much weight your body actually could move. And if we look at on a scale of intensity, if you're only farmers walking three plates a day, you'll probably only be farmers walking three plates in three months from now. Yeah. I think there's too much of an emphasis on holding things. And the part, I, I understand why people arrive at that conclusion. Cause you look at a sport like rock climbing climbers, most climbers, if you ask them how they do a lot of their specific hand training, they're doing holds, yep. five seconds, eight seconds, but pay attention to how much resistance they're actually using. So yeah, they're doing eight second holds and you're doing eight second holds, but this guy is putting all of his body weight onto the tip of his index and middle finger. And he's just hanging there with the tiniest amount of contact in a crimp for five seconds. The loading on that is extraordinary. And I think that's probably the error that a lot of people make is maybe it might be that they just don't know what to do and they're doing too many garbage reps of too much lightweight. And I would flip that equation on its head. Like for most of the people out there, if you're deadlifting now, you either are one of two people. You're either a deadlifter who says, my pull would go better if my hand was stronger category one or your category two and you're saying no my grip's good that's not why i'm missing reps okay if you're in the first bracket the kind of grip work i would have you do would be the same kind of thing you're probably already doing singles triples i, I don't need you to take what's already working for you and go to sets of 15 or something that maybe that has not been working for you i would have you stick to what you know and let's just change the contact point. And for a lot of people, the best investment, if you're just a, if you're just a guy who, a guy or gal, and you just love to lift and you want to get more performance and safety, get a set of fat grips and use them in a programmed way, no different than you do your other barbell lifts. So when the fat grips go on the bar, the biggest change is the amount of weight that you're going to lift is going to go down. But the scheme of your lifting really should be about the same. So if you already know that you respond really well to, to solid triples, do solid triples, but now you got the fat grips on the bar overhand. And yes. the only real change is, well, there'll be fewer plates, but you'll feel it quite a bit when you take that fat grip off and grab that bar. Yeah, I think that's so key because the first part of the conversation we we're talking about, if you are specifically training for a grip sport competition, which is different than training a grip to see a positive transfer to just be stronger overall. So for the second category, which is what you were talking about there, a lot of people I see that their hands and fingers are the limiter. And if they are the limiter, that generally means they haven't done a whole lot of specific work for it. They're not looking to compete in grip sport if they want to, that's great. They're just looking for the transfer to get stronger, like you said, in the deadlift. And so for that category, I find exactly what you said is that <clears throat> you don't need a lot of hyper specific work. You don't need to spend 
hours upon hours doing it. And I love your tip of just take fat grips, put them on the bar, double overhand, do some deadlifts in that position, because now you've taken a lift where you can already move an appreciable amount of load. And you've just put the stress more on your grip as the limiting factor of that lift. And therefore you're training it specifically to transfer to your deadlift, but you're not, for example, I see people, oh, I want to train my grip. So I'm going to go by and just close a bunch of grippers for a while. Rarely have I, I don't know, I've hardly ever seen that transfer. Or I think just oh, getting God, a pair of God. fat grips, you're going to be miles ahead. So the phenomenon of the torsion spring gripper. Yep. So Mike, I remember when I was probably 15 or 16 years old, it was on the back pages of a issue of Iron Man magazine. Yeah. The Ivanko super gripper. Yep. It was a big green <laughs> monstrosity with these springs on it. And the thing about it is the advertising was really clever because they showed this guy's forearm and I'm betting it was like, Lee Priest, it, it was somebody <laughs> that had a very short forearm that was exceptionally muscular. Yeah. It's saying that, hey, if you were squeezing this thing, your arm would look more like this arm. And I'm going to tell you right now, I know of the top 10 strongest of all time gripper closes. I purse there on my phone is seven of them. We all laugh because none of the guys that can close like the famous Captain of Crush number four gripper, which would just feel like a brick to most Insane. people, their arms never look like that advertisement. No, <laughs> moving your hand in that motion is not going to build up your hand and forearm the way that you might think. So right off the bat, if your training focuses aesthetics and you're thinking of adding in some hand training, I'm going to tell you now, closing the gripper will not change the quality of muscle in how it appears in your arms. I promise that. The other problem with it though, is that it is such a hyper specific thing. Like a, if a guy is an awesome baseball player, it does not mean he'll be an awesome golfer. Yes. Two look pretty similar in some ways, but no, they don't equal out at all. And in that way, here's the deal of grippers guys. If you're someone who thinks that that is cool, if that whole idea of being able to pick up one of these things and man, it just feels like it would never even move. And now you can close it. And that is satisfying. Cool. Keep doing it. Just don't expect that to necessarily show up anywhere else. Funny in the USA right now, one of the best gripper closes ever is a 19 year old in Chicago. Oh, wow. He can close these grippers in just unbelievable power. All right. Now, when you look at his all around hand strength, Definitely above average. Absolutely. But there's this thing where you'd expect that if I told you that guy can close the number four gripper, you would probably anticipate that he can do so many things. And it's just not that what it's just not the case. So for most people, I think hand grippers are an amusing distraction at best and can become a terribly unproductive detour, including there's some injuries you can get from them. They're not they're dangerous because they push back. Yep. So it's, they're fighting you the whole way and it is easy to hurt yourself with them if you don't know what you're doing. Or if you're like Adam and you exert too much force on them and break them, that can mess you up too. <laughs> that was a bad, like <laughs> there was a, 
gripper that I got from Europe, guys, and it had a very different setup from the ones you've probably seen. And it had a screw and a bolt holding the center line together. I'd put so many reps on this thing over a period of about two years that there was a day I was in the gym setting it at a stupid high level. And I broke the weld that held the leg on because it was binding up. And that had snapped a tendon on the top of my wrist. And it took about eight months to even get back to being feeling strong on that side from it. And uh, I have not really messed with grippers too much after 2012 for that reason. I can still pick up a number three and close it, but I won't, you won't see anything more than that from me on it. I just, I, the, to me there, it's like paying a hundred percent for 1% return. There's just, you're not getting a full body training effect. It is extremely draining on the nervous system to be able to mess with these heavy grippers. And, uh, and at the end of the day, most people end up, you either go one or two directions. You own a few of them or you own a ton of them. And when yeah. you own a ton of them, <laughs> you probably own too many that are too easy. And then you own too many that are too hard. And you're really only working on one or two of them at a time. And uh, for the people that are into that's great. But to me, it is a terrible starting place. If you're just thinking, oh, I really need to make my hands and fingers stronger. Yeah. And the, and the only time I trained them is when you had it as part of your grip competitions there. And I just trained it. So it wasn't completely <laughs> horrible and I didn't see hardly any transfer from it. I actually, towards the end, I stopped training them because it was at least for me, a little bit annoying. It was a little bit draining. And then people also forget to, to actually set a gripper properly. There's more technique involved in it than most people would realize it becomes very on the high end very technical just to get it into that starting position on top of everything else oh yes the tiniest deviation from that perfect position can turn something that you can do three reps with into not even doing one and the reason i took them out of my contest after a while was it became too frustrating to watch yeah people up that were really performing well in the overhand lifts and the heavy one hand lifts and you could tell that person had some power then you hand them a gripper which they have not messed with before and missing their attempts a hundred percent because of the positioning of the apparatus and the thing is this is because the set is part of the close that makes it part of the deal but what i found with it by looking at numbers, Mike, from just the number of people we had come through, whoever closed the biggest gripper that day had little impact on who won the event. Yes. Out of, I don't even know how many contests I've hosted now. It's probably towards a hundred. And some lifts were indicative of who's going to win and who's not. And some lifts were just crazy. And the grippers was the event that you could take it out of the scorecard almost every time in the ranking didn't change. And I think that's important when yeah. you're finding an event that's not actually changing how the pack is split up. It tells me from a competitive point of view of ranking, maybe this is the wrong event. I really want to see that every event allows the final placing to be impacted, which that's just a function of looking at enough variables. And I think that's the wrong one. And I'll tell you guys, so here's the other thing that comes with grippers that I just have to address on this call real quick. The most common behavior of people who get into grippers is they buy a gripper 
and they put it in their car <laughs> and they get in this idea of things like, okay, when I stop at a red light, I'm going to do three or four reps. That is a very risky behavior because you're not appreciating the toll it's taking on your body. Who, if your max back squat, say four or five, you would probably not decide that, you know, about every hour you're going to walk out to your weight stand and try to dunk 405 three or four times. You wouldn't do that. You'd warm up, but you'd have to take <laughs> You certainly wouldn't be trying to do that, say, 15, 17 times in the last two days. So the way that a lot of people engage in it is going to become counterproductive because they're basically going to dig themselves into such a hole. If you want to make it work, what will work better is you're really only going to be picking up that gripper about once a week. And you're only going to be doing a couple of, of attempts. And you just got to understand the spring tension is so high that you are doing enough work to flip that switch and get some progress. It, you certainly do not need to be doing so many reps upon so many reps with it. Yeah, it's almost like the convenience of it works against it. And I get people who market grippers to the general population like we were talking about it's oh you can bring it anywhere you can start this and look at this arm this is impressive and from a marketing standpoint it's almost like too easy but in practice yeah it's just i don't know i'm at the point now where i'm sure you've had this conversation way more than i have you find out you do grip stuff people come up to you and go hey man I just bought this gripper and they show you how they set it and they're doing all sorts of stuff. And you're just like, Oh no, not another one. <laughs> it's I'll tell you what the, I, the, when the little light bulb goes on and a lot of the guys, I'll tell you what, I, I see a level of disappointment that, that they realize how much of it is technique. Oh yeah. Especially when they're shown the right technique the first time they're like, Oh shit. It just, it completely strips away the mystique that this is this, man, the, the people who can close this are badasses. Hey, they are. They totally are. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. But what they also are is they're smart and they figured out the, okay, if somebody is not a great, you can come in and you can do some things with them. And maybe on that day, they get 10 more pounds. And then maybe by training the right way, they'll end up putting on a baby 25 in six months or something. We've seen that. And that makes yeah. sense. You've got all these different joints. Grippers is kind of weird because you can have somebody go from absolutely cannot close it to close it for reps by getting it in their hand the right way. And then even by training that way, the progress is just remarkably slow. Yeah. So it's if somebody wants to close grippers and they like buying grippers, that's great. Especially if you're an American, do what your liberty calls you to. But for a lot of people, what would be better? Here's a couple of things that I think would be dramatically better. Uh, the first one is for a lot of people, I would say if we could get you to do more of your pull ups and chin ups using either a rope or a thick towel, that would be better. By, by a large margin, especially because that gives you so many more freedoms for the variation of your reps. And now it will be, you'll definitely have hand element in the equation. So to me, that right off the bat, substantially better. If we could get someone to use a bar where their hand is more open, 
substantially better. There's a lot of fat bars on the market. Mike, when I first got started in grip, it was like 1998 or 99. And I remember I read this book and the book is telling me I need to get a, a thick bar. And I start going around to sporting goods stores in the Detroit <laughs> metro area. And everybody looked at me like I what? was an idiot. No, son, this is a barbell. We don't <laughs> make barbells bigger than this. And my first thick bar was something I actually built in our high school shop class. Oh, nice. Uh, no, man, it was super rudimentary. <laughs> they had a piece of a 1.9 diameter stock laying in the corner. And I got the teacher to agree that was going to go in the trash pile. And then we just <laughs> did a set of washers that we welded on the inside to, to stop the plates from moving. And that was kind yep. of it. And I will remember the day forever. The day that I first did my lifts, throw on like 225, struggle mightily to get in some deadlifts with it. And I probably did eight or nine sets a day of twos and threes. Didn't think too much of it. Did the rest of my session. Woke up the next morning and felt crippled. <laughs> I remember I had never had a soreness like that in my arms. Now I've had, I'd had soreness before because we're freaking teenagers and we'd go to the gym and curl for an hour and bench yep. press. And I can remember times that my hands would feel really tired from wrestling, but I'd never felt soreness like that. And uh, I think that was one of the things that just really got my attention. And there's something to this. But you go back to then, there was no options. No. If you go right now and you open up your web browser and you start looking with keywords like axle, fat bar, two-inch bar, you will find no less than 20 different distributors and vendors that will sell you a barbell made like that. They have, I don't know, Mike, I'm going to have to bet that there's probably 30 or more varieties of some kind of slip-on grip. Oh yeah, there's a ton. The fat grips. When we say fat grips, it's if I say Kleenex, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kleenex is a brand of tissue. The real thing is the product is a tissue. Kleenex is a brand. Fat grips is a brand of a slip-on grip, but they are probably the household name. And ultimately, I don't even think it matters. Like, you know what? Go get you a couple of them, and guys, figure out how comfortable it is in your hand. It should be wide enough that your fingers are expanded and not that close to your palm, but it also should not be so big that you feel like all you're really doing is just pinching with your thumb. So shop around a lot of these grips, man, I was at the Academy here in my city the other day, they have a brand of slip on grips right on the shelf at the sporting goods store for eight bucks. Oh, nice. And you know what? I bet they're indestructible. Yeah, they're because all pretty they're just, similar. Yeah, like you, it, once you buy that product, it doesn't go bad. No. And as long as you don't put some kind of solvent on it, it's never going to break down or rip or anything like that. For most people, the access to getting so much benefit might only be 10 bucks away. And throw it in your gym bag and, man, just make it a practice that between either your chin-ups and pull-ups or your rowing, or you're curling, or you're deadlifting, or when you're carrying stuff, you use those things every week. And don't worry about how much you're using, just try to keep making that number go up. So it's not a question of if it's a good lift or a bad lift. The real thing is, man, are you getting better at it? And if you are, keep doing it. That's going to be useful to you. 
Yeah, no, I agree. That's awesome. And I wanted to let everybody know that we're super excited because we have a, a grip product coming out. Then you'll be teaching everyone. It's not necessarily for people who are elite grip level competitors, although I'm sure they'd learn a lot of stuff from you. It's more for people who are looking just to get overall stronger for who knows, like everything from jujitsu to just training in the gym. Grip is associated with longevity. And like you said, it, if you know the things to do and what to avoid, it doesn't really add that much to your overall program. But I think there's a lot of, like we talked about with the grippers, there's just a lot of horrible advice of where to start. Unfortunately, I've seen people go down the wrong direction and then they don't you know, rightfully get frustrated with it and they can't figure it out. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the, what you'll be teaching and the product that's coming out. I'm really excited about this. And there's a special community of people that I really want to get access to for this. Okay. And it is the people who are just not going to be able to chase maybe the thing they started with when they got into fitness and lifting and all these various things. So there's a person out there and man, they just love to see the number in their notebook increase month by month. But maybe they were in a car accident. Maybe they've had a surgery. Maybe something has happened and they just know that their day of Another 50 pounds on their squat this year just is not going to, it's not going to play out that way. Shifting the focus into the hands and arms can be really fun because it's another area to progress and you're getting stronger, but it's also safer access, Yes, especially the way that I show people to do it. So the groups of people that I really want to help as we get into this year is the people who want something they can keep getting better at because their first love is just not as accessible. And then that second group is the people who have that thing they love. Maybe they love baseball. They love volleyball. They love to golf. They love to kiteboard, right? Yeah. And realize that, man, if my hand or my wrist or my thumb wasn't having this issue at this point in the activity, I would be doing better. So the real focus I'd like to see is to present, how do you take this really big idea? I know probably guys, if you're looking at grip chain, you've never seen it. It seems like it'd be just so simple, but the thing is the hand can articulate in so many ways and there's so many available ranges of motion. There's a lot of interesting things you can do. I want to open up access for that to show people how they can make a lot of progress this year in something that man, I think they'll really come to enjoy when they find their favorite thing. Generally speaking, it seems if you take any given person, Mike, and you show them maybe six or seven of the kind of things that people do when they're training their hands and their wrists and their fingers, there's going to be something that they are unusually well at, like starting off. I've had people come over the house and maybe they really struggled with the fat bar lifts but you ask them to go grab two plates and sandwich them together and pick them up in one hand and they just do it effortlessly. And usually it's funny, they have a life story attached to that. Like, oh yeah, when I was in high school, I apprenticed with a bricklayer and for four yeah. summers, I was a mason. <laughs> and it's, dude, you got a pretty yeah. strong name. I think for some sports, people will not realize how much a stronger hand will help them until they have. Hear this thought, listeners. 
in the NFL, the outcome of entire seasons has been decided when a defender was unable to maintain a grip on a guy's jersey. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in the entire NFL season can swing the moment one guy was just not able to keep that grip in the whole scale of the game change. And that guy ran in a touchdown and then their team got revved up and then they made a conversion. And all of a sudden the whole spirit of the thing shifts and you go back and it's like, why did we lose? If you want to get really specific, we were ahead until that one guy got right ahead of that defender. And the guy had a grip on the back of his shirt and he lost it. It's quite a thing to look at. I've had friends tell me that they've been out on the golf course and they realized by about the eighth or ninth hole that their swing isn't feeling bad and their body's feeling pretty good, but their wrist is getting tired too fast. And you can see it when you look at their, when you look at their numbers. Wow. The first 25 minutes of your guys round, you were having great drives. Your short game looked clean. And then you start getting sloppy right about here. What's breaking down. It's not their focus. It's that their wrist is too fatigued. Hey, we can do something of that. And another group of people, Michael highlight, you got to meet this person. If you remember Marlene Buxine from, yeah. yep. here's the key thing. In America, as people get older, they're typically needing things like they might need this prescription medicine and they might need it like every morning at 8 a.m. or something. When you are getting older and you're having wrist and hand pain and weakness, you can reach a point where you might not be able to twist open that bottle to get that pill you need. I remember one of the days Marlene came in and sat down. I said, Marlene, what do you want to work on? She goes, I can't open envelopes. So what do you mean? She said, my, my mail is coming in and my thumb is not working well enough right now to open up these envelopes. And I just never considered that, that, wow, man, what happens when a person has had something degrade to the point that even things that a lot of us would call a simple task becomes impossible. And it was very frustrating for her. So we got to work on her and within six weeks, she was able to open any envelope she wanted. And it was funny because she was happier with that than the (laughs) same guys I was working with. And we put 20 pounds on one of their pinch lifts. Yeah. So that to me is something that I'd really like to accomplish with the work we're going to do is, man, I want to take away the fog and the confusion. And I just want to make it very clear that here's a path. This is an arena that you can come in and you can win. Is it going to be a problem that you've got small hands? No, because the hands you have are the hands you have. Is it going to be a problem that you've had wrist pain? No, I'm really hoping that I can reveal some things that make that go away. Mike, another key area that we're going to touch on in the course is going to be approaches that strength athletes have used successfully to resolve an elbow tendonitis. Generally speaking, the way that I have made progress with myself and friends of mine that were hurting, it just looks different than what I see some of the physical therapists recommend. So for some people, if you have chased what your therapist has already recommended and it doesn't seem to work, maybe I can show you a couple things that they're just not thinking of to include that might have a really big impact. And I think that'd be a great thing to help anybody get out of pain. Yeah. And that's a super common one. I just did a call before this with a guy and we were talking all about that, you know, and if you just ask lifters in general, 
Like how often have you had tendinosis, tendinitis, elbow pain, golfer's elbow, whatever, tennis elbow, whatever you want to call it. I would bet that it's a very large percentage of people who have that or currently have it. Man, I would, I don't have the numbers to prove anything here, guys. So this is just a thought, but I will tell you this. Observationally, I know three times more guys that are not seriously chasing their fitness pursuit at this point because of elbow related pain rather than back. Most lifters who are suffering from a back pain will pretty quickly figure out their own workarounds. They're going to figure out what to do and not do. When you have a really horrific flare-up of elbow pain, the thing about it is it takes you out of the equation for almost everything you'd want to do. Even things like if you have a bad flare-up, you might say, okay, look, you know what? I'm just going to leg press today. And what do you learn? Loading the damn 45s on the leg press hurts so bad, you don't even want to do it. Yeah, I think about out of my house, I'm moving a lot of feed every week, guys. I got 50 pound bags of feed and 150 pound bales of hay. I've had buddies show up. A lot of days we'll get done arm wrestling. I'll say, hey, you guys want to help me go check out the goats? And they always want to see them. They're guys that they can easily lift the house. But picking up a 50 pound sack of food is so painful. They'd rather not do it. And it's, oh man, we can help you with that. There's things that can be done that will give you an amount of relief. And the things that everyone who's ever suffered this knows when you're hurting, even the promise of 1% less pain is appealing. Oh yeah. So if you're not suffering from that, awesome. And I want to show you some things so that maybe you never get into it. But if you are suffering, I obviously could never promise anything too solid, make it all go away but I'm pretty sure there's going to be some things we're going to cover that will offer you some relief with some of the things may give you some relief immediately. And I think that'll be, especially Mike, with your background with tissue work, there's a lot of things that I don't even do yet that I would really love to see included with it because there's just the great news is if someone is suffering right now, there are a lot more levers they can pull than they might know. Yeah, no, I agree. And I've used a lot of the tips I learned from you over many years now, helping just tons of clients with that, because it's just, it's so common. And then it's almost one of those things that's so easy to take for granted. And once you, and I've had tendonitis in both elbows multiple times before, and I was also an idiot and did give myself tendinosis in my knees and my elbows on purpose a couple of times to see if I could resolve it. <laughs> I like that. Which, I like that. I don't recommend that to anyone, but I'm like, oh, shit, if I'm so good at this, how about I just give it to myself uh, and see if I can fix I like myself. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Super special thanks to Adam Glass for coming on here and talking all about training principles and especially grip strength. If you are interested in learning more about the product that I have coming out with Adam Glass, look for the link uh, below. It depends on when you're listening to this podcast, but if you're on my email list already through MikeTNelson.com, you will get all of the information there. Adam has a link also. You can find out more information from him. And his link is bettergripstrength.com. 
and go to the links below here. We'll have all the information. I'm super excited for this product. I think it's going to be very unique. And like I said in the interview, there's very few people who have been able to do some of the grip stuff that Adam has been able to do. And there's very few people who can actually teach it at the same time. Uh, so check out that product in the link below. And then stay tuned next week as I will have part two of the interview with Adam Glass. And we talk a little bit more about fat loss, body composition, and some aspects of metabolic flexibility. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. I will talk to you all next week. I have a good mind to go home. You had a good mind, you wouldn't be here in the first place.